Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you've been saved very long, more than likely you already know that these first ten verses constitute some of the most important verses, one of the most important sections of Scripture to be found anywhere in the Bible. I've sometimes referred to this section as Salvation 101. That 101, of course, as means an introductory something. Generally, they use it in colleges in reference to an introductory course and usually without any prerequisites. But it speaks about a topic for beginners and deals with the basics. And regardless of what we're talking about, we need to remember that the basics are always important. It might be in sports. And you mark it down, the team that neglects the basics over a period of time will eventually become a losing team because you just can't perform at a top level without getting back to the basics. It's true in business. There are certain basic fundamental rules that have to be followed or you're going to go bankrupt. It's true in a church. But it's never more true than when you're talking about the matter of salvation. And it's easy, believe it or not, for us to lose sight of what's truly important. And the reason is because we tend to focus on things that are interesting to us. And spiritual things are not, you know, on the list for a lot of people. But we Christians are sometimes even guilty of doing this. You know, we get so busy attending to so many needs in our life and perhaps others. And, and we get so involved perhaps in church ministry and things of that nature that over a period of time we lose sight of the importance of a simple message such as this. And it is simple. It's serious and it's simple. So as we, as we end one year and we start a new year, I want to get started by keeping the main thing the main thing. I, I feel like Richard Baxter, who said this was over 400 years ago, the old English Puritan, he said, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. And over the years, I've tried to keep that statement in my mind because we never know when we'll have the last opportunity to tell somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin by reading the first three verses of this section, and then we'll move on. Verse number one says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein... In time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Every week, as I prepare the message for Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, every week, I always have a, 
a tendency to look back. I keep a record of what I preached and when I preached it. Uh, just out of curiosity to look back and say, well, you know, I preached from this text. Might not be the same message, but from this text on a certain date. And uh, especially when I was a young preacher, I tried my best to avoid, you know, preaching the same message twice in the same place. And uh, so at any rate, there are times where you just know ahead of time it doesn't really make any difference. And I can assure you that if I had preached this same message from these same verses last Sunday, I'd be preaching the same thing right here this morning. That's how strongly I feel about it being God's will for us to think about Salvation 101. Now, in these verses, Paul is writing here to Christians. Notice he says in verse 1, And you, and if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, he says he's speaking to the saints that are at Ephesus. So he's speaking to Christians. Now this is a message about salvation, but understand that it's being delivered to Christians, reminding them of their former estate and how they came to be saved. But that makes it also an ideal message for those who are unsaved. So as I examine this section this morning... I want, to, I want you to think of it as just a personal message. If you're saved, that's great. I want to remind you of some things. If you haven't been saved, I want you to listen carefully. But instead of thinking about a sermon to the congregation, I, you know, just imagine maybe we're sitting in a coffee shop and uh, you're on one side of the table and I'm on the other side. We're drinking a cup of coffee and, and chatting or it might be we've gone fishing and we're just sitting out there in a bass boat somewhere and uh, and we start chatting about things that are spiritual. And uh, think about it that way. Set down your cup of coffee, lay down your fishing pole or whatever it is you have on your mind and uh, focus in on what Paul says. Now, just suppose that that you ask me, this question. You said, what in the world is wrong with the world? What in the world is wrong with the world? And we all agree that it's obvious that something is wrong with this world, right? We all agree to that. Regardless of what denomination you are, regardless of whether you are even, you know, think of yourself as a Christian, whether you're an American or wherever it is that you know, you might live. doesn't make any difference. Everybody knows there is something wrong with the world. And the good thing about the bad thing is that we don't have to guess at what it is. Because the Bible tells us clearly exactly what the problem is. And it's found in that little three-letter word, sin. That is at the root of all of the problems in the world. So that being the case, we must understand what sin is, and the Bible tells us. 1 John 3 and verse 4, you don't need to turn there, but you do need to listen. He says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is coming short. 
Sin is a departure from God's perfect standard. In other words, it is a deviation from that which pleases God. And by the way, that describes all of mankind. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 3, over and over, he emphasized the fact that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So regardless of, regardless of who you are or what you've done, you started out in this world with a sinful nature. And so that describes every person on the face of the earth. And so rather than pleasing God, you want to know what's wrong with the world? Well, rather than pleasing God, the natural man thinks about pleasing self. In fact, that's about all he thinks of. And you'll remember that whenever Paul is dealing with the with the characteristics of these last days in which we live. In 2 Timothy in chapter 3, you can sum all of that up by, by simply saying that it's obvious that man is occupied with self. They shall be lovers of themselves more than lovers of God, lovers of pleasure more than God. And so that's what life is all about for the average person, and that's what's wrong with the world. So what's wrong with the world? You are. You are. I am. We are. Man is what is wrong with the world because we've all sinned. The question now is what can be done about it? How in the world can we solve a problem that uh, of such magnitude, a problem that is so serious. What, what is the answer, the solution for this? And that's why this section of Scripture is so very important. Notice here in these first three verses we see, first of all, the problem of sin. And in other words, this is the sinner's condition. And it's not a pretty picture. Look at verse number 1. He says, first of all, he tells us that the sinner is dead or wretched because he says in verse 1, he's dead in trespasses and sins. Do you ever think about dead people walking among us? There are dead people walking among us. You have dead people in your family. Dead people, spiritually dead, separated from God. That's man's greatest issue right there. He is separated from God. But look at verse 2. Not only is he dead and wretched, he's defiled and worldly. It says that before you were saved, Paul says to these saints, you walked according to the course of this world. Now, you might be in touch with the times But if you're not saved, you're out of touch with God. They're defiled. They walked according to the course of this sinful world. Look at verse 2 as he goes on. They're disobedient and they're wayward. He says, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And so they are disobedient toward God. They were wayward from what God desires for them, and the reason behind it is that they have been taken captive by the devil at his will. So many times when we think about unsaved people, whatever their sin is, it might be that they're, you know, they're addicted to drugs, it might be sexual issues, it might be dishonesty, it can be 411 different things. You know, and we look at them and we wonder, well, how can anybody be so stupid as to keep doing something, 
you know, that is so harmful to them and so harmful to others. And so many times, you know, we leave the impression, well, you know, all, all you got to do is just change your lifestyle, make better decisions. All that sounds good, but you've lost sight of the fact that until a person is saved, they're taken captive by the devil at his will. Before I was saved, I did, I, look, I didn't want to be the person I was. I wanted to change. I couldn't change. I promised Bev that I would change, but I didn't change simply because I couldn't. And that's true of everyone, even religious people. There are people who got the idea, well, as long as, you know, I, I attend church, as long as I read my Bible once in a while and so forth, why, well, you know, I, I'm okay. Look, the devil doesn't care whether you go to uh, hell from a bar stool or a church pew. It doesn't make him one bit of difference. Sometimes he can get folks into hell a whole lot easier from a church pew than he can from a bar stool. The guy on the bar stool, he'll get miserable of his sin sometimes and he'll start looking for some way out. But the self-righteous person in the church pew just feels mighty comfortable there like, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be all right. Notice he says here that they are disobedient and they're wayward. Now look at verse 3. They are doomed to wrath. He says, notice, they are the children of wrath. That accounts for what we see in this world. But notice that this introduces us to the very next fact. Not only do we see the problem of sin, that is the sinner's condition, but we see the punishment of sinners. Notice that they're the children of wrath. That's the sad consequences of violating God's righteous standard. A lot of times we think about sin and what it does to us and we think about it only in the terms of, you know, it makes us unhappy or dissatisfied. That's the way I was before I was saved. I I knew I was unhappy. I knew I was dissatisfied. I didn't know what to do about it. didn't have any idea whatsoever. And that's where the average person is today and what they don't realize. It's much worse than just being unhappy and dissatisfied because of the fact that we have to give an account of ourselves to a holy God. We are a sinful people. And the Bible says we are condemned already. didn't say someday you're going to be condemned. But he says we are condemned already. The indictment is already issued against the sinner. And he is simply awaiting that day to stand before the Lord for the final moment of judgment whenever the sentence will be given. Paul said to these saints, he said, now this is the way that you used to be. You used to be the children of wrath. The children of wrath. Because God's holy, God hates sin. If He didn't hate sin, He wouldn't be holy, right? And because God is holy, He hates sin, but that means He's going to judge those who are hostile toward his laws. So if we're living in rebellion against the law of God, if we're violating the standard that God has set, then the wrath of God is something that is absolutely going to happen. And 
and to sum it all up, you know, we think about we think about how horrible hell is, and we ought to do that more often. But we think about the fire and the brimstone and smoke, and we think about the evil company that we're, people will be among, and so on and so forth. The worst thing about hell is that God won't be there. You'll be separated from God forever and ever and ever. And whenever you consider man's sinfulness, you think, wow, there is no hope. That we are the children of wrath. We have sinned against God. We are doomed. Where in the world are we going to find hope for a problem like this? Notice verse 4, these first two words, but God. But God. This is the way it used to be. This is the way it was before you were saved. But God, you were the children of wrath. But God, you walked according to the prince of the power of the air. But God, you walked according to the course of this world. But God, you were dead in trespasses and sins. But God. So now he comes down to the provision of the Savior. This, this is the Savior's cure. Thank God that He has a cure for every ill that troubles man. So the subject, as we go to verse 4, changes from guilt to grace. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Aren't you glad that there is a provision? Here we find hope for the hopeless. And whenever we think about the sinner's condition and we think about the consequences, how awful that is, how wonderful it is that we can focus on the cure, God's cure for that which is man's worst problem. And so the, the solution for the sinner's separation from God is for the sinner to be reconciled to God, brought into a state of agreement, a state of oneness with God. And He reconciles us by redeeming us. Back in ancient times, it was a very common thing for someone to be sold into bondage as a result of not being able to, to pay a debt that they had incurred. And sometimes it affected the entire family. An entire family was sold into slavery. And what a glorious day it was when someone came along as a kinsman redeemer a relative, a near relative who had the means whereby they could purchase them out of the slave market of sin and bring them to their own home and set them free and give them the life that they never had. 
And that's exactly what Christ did. He says in Ephesians 1, 6, we've been made accepted in the Beloved. He redeemed us, and through His redemption, we can be reconciled to God. And this is exactly what, what Paul is telling them. Now, in the first place, because we look at this and we rejoice about what God has done and what God can do, but there's a couple of problems. The first problem is getting people to hear this glorious news. In order to get them to hear, we've got to either get them here or we've got to go there. One of the two. Because it doesn't work by osmosis. God didn't write the gospel up, up, in, the, up in the sky. God didn't, you know, give the woodpecker the ability to tap it out in Morse code on the telephone pole. He gave us the good news and said, now I want you to preach the gospel to every creature, go into all of the world. So if they're going to hear this good news, if they're going to discover how they can be reconciled to God, how their deepest need can be met, then somebody, somebody has to go tell them and to share with them this good news. Part of the problem in getting them to hear is that so many times, even if we get them here, there are a lot of times that we Christians, we, we get conditioned to wanting to hear what we prefer or what relates strictly to us. The, the longer I preach, the more I realize the great need in preaching messages about, uh, about suffering. Because we all need that at some point in some time. So it's so very vital for every Christian, if they're going to not only, if they're not only going to survive, if they're going to thrive, if they're going to grow spiritually, they need to be there every time the doors are open. If they possibly can, they need to study God's Word, listen to God's Word, but so many times we preachers are guilty of caving in to the desires of the people because we know they want to hear about they want to hear about the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation. They want to know who the two witnesses they were. They want to know where Cain got his wife. They, you know, and it goes on and all the different interesting things that they'd like to know. Preacher, why don't you preach on that? God just said, you know, it really doesn't make any difference what you preach. Just, you know, from now on, I just want you to preach whatever's on your heart. I, I reckon I'd just preach on heaven every week. Doesn't get any better than that. But God didn't give me permission to do that, and the reason He didn't is because that's not the message that the sinner needs to hear. We need to understand that it's a plain, simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of self-interest, at least to some measure, we have lost interest in the needs of the lost. And the sad thing is, look, I'm not just blaming you as a congregation. The sad thing is, the average preacher gives them what they want instead of what the sinner needs. So we just put them on the back burner. After all, you know, we got to take care of the saints. The saints have needs. They ought to be cared for. That's the job of a pastor. 
But it goes way beyond that. What we need to do is to see the needs of those that are lost. And dealing with people like that is so very difficult because, as Paul said, they have been blinded by the God of this world. We're not going to win people to Christ by education. Now, I'm talking about good education. I'm talking about instruction from God's Word, educating them, teaching them a timeline of great Bible events. That's, that's important. That's wonderful. That's good. But we're not going to educate people into the kingdom of God. We're not going to entertain people into the kingdom of God. Even the most eloquent preaching in the world is not going to get people into the kingdom of God. Emotional pleas are not going to get people saved. Because unsaved people are unreasonable people. You can't reason with them. We need something more than our abilities, more than just information. We have to keep hammering away with the Word of God, which is what? It is the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring conviction to those that are lost. And as we pray and as we persuade them the best we can, and by being an example of the believer, as Paul said, an example of the believer because all of the fine things we say will get swept out with everything else if they don't see us putting it in shoe leather. If they don't see us living out what we've proclaimed that we believe, we'll never be able to reach them. That's why so many times you invite someone to church and what? Their excuse is, well, I'm not going to church. There's too many hypocrites there. Well, sure, there are a lot of hypocrites in church. There always will be. That's not the issue. If you let a hypocrite, you know, keep you away from the Lord, he's closer to God than you are because, amen? That, that's right. Now, there's three things I want you to take away from all of this. Three things. The cure is, is that's the bottom line right there. The fact that that we're saved by what? Say it. Through, through what? Faith. Now, I didn't hear one person say baptism, church membership, or anything else, right? Because that's not what the Bible says. Saved by grace through faith. And we all understand that. It's not of what? Not of works. So no effort on our part is going to get us into the kingdom of God. It's by grace through faith. That's the way every person is saved. That's salvation 101. It's as simple as it can be, but there are three things about it. Number one, we Christians ought to thank God for our salvation. Just think about where you would be had it not been for God's saving grace. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. Wonderful. My favorite time of the year, Thanksgiving. In the fall of the year, I just absolutely love it. But how thankful we ought to be every day of the year. And that's why I'm emphasizing that Paul is writing this to Christian people. And he's doing so because there was a need for them to be reminded of what God 
had done and there still is and there will always be that need for you and I to remember what He's done for us, what He delivered us from so that we might be thankful. But if you're here this morning as an unbeliever, you, you need to trust Christ. You can thank Him all you want to, but it doesn't really make any difference. You can sing about the old rugged cross and you can talk about how religious Grandpa was and all of those things, but it's not going to help you one little bit. There's only one thing that will help you, and that's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The need of salvation could not be more evident, and the way to salvation could not be more clear than what it is. It's religion that has muddied up the waters. That's exactly what has happened. You go all of the way back to the ministry of the apostles who had learned at the feet of the Lord Jesus Himself and they made it perfectly clear. There in the jail at Philippi and the jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What could be more clear than the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the way you got saved back then. That's the way you get saved today. So if you're a Christian, you need to thank God for your salvation. If you're an unbeliever, you need to trust God for your salvation. But if you are a backslider, a Christian that has just some way or another, you didn't intend for it to happen, but over time, some way or another, your attention has been diverted from the needs of the lost to your own personal desires. You've been sidetracked in some way. You need to turn back to your first love. Get back to the very first basic things of being a Christian because what did you do after you got saved? Chances are, chances are, after you got saved, you made a public profession by following the Lord in baptism, right? But you didn't stop there. Maybe your mama was unsaved or your daddy or your husband or your wife and you begin to talk to others about their need of salvation. Am I right? It, I, I want to tell you right now, if you got saved 20 years ago and you've never felt the need to talk to your loved ones about Christ, I really doubt you got saved 20 years ago. I'll guarantee you if I... If I inherited $10 million tomorrow, the whole world's going to know about it the next day. Well, maybe not. But my friends are going to know about it. Amen. I mean, I'd be rejoicing. And whenever it comes to finding Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that's good news. That's something you want to share with all of your loved ones. And for those of us, as I said, we didn't intend for it to happen. Look, it happens to me. It happens. I'm going to assume it happens to you. If it hasn't, it will eventually. It will. Because you're going to get so caught up in the things of the world. I'm not talking about the bad things. I'm talking about the good things. And Paul said, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. And it's, look, our greatest enemy is not the bad, it's the good. We allow the good to crowd out the best. And we get sidetracked. And so as we enter into this new year, I, I hope and I pray that, that each and every one of us will determine as, as a Christian person that we're going to regain that, that love and that desire, that burning desire to see others Come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Because if we don't care, we might as well just lock up and go home and forget about it. The church that doesn't care about unsaved people is nothing more than a glorified social club. They need to do something honest and go out of business or get right with God, one of the two. And I'm telling you, it can happen to any of us, regardless of how much you love God and how much you care about your family. If you're not careful, you'll become so blasé, as it were, so mired down as old Vance Hafner used to stay stuck in the rut, you know. You just get in a rut and get satisfied and stay there. And I'm telling you, folks, we, we have no idea when we'll have our last opportunity. We... None of us have any idea whether we'll make it through this new year. We don't know. Your loved one might die, and that'll take away the opportunity. Or you might die. You might die before the sun sets this evening. We have no assurance that we won't. And that's why we need to take advantage of our opportunities to tell our loved ones about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, this is the way that it used to be. You were doomed and damned. You were a slave to Satan. But God, but God made it all possible through simple childlike faith for you to be saved. If you're not, if you're not a Christian today, would you come? We're going to have an invitation in just a moment. And we want to encourage you to come and to put your faith in Christ today. In fact, you can be saved right where you are. You don't have to walk down that aisle to be saved. You don't have to get on your knees and say a certain prayer to be saved. All you've got to do is believe with all of your heart. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. But then please come and tell us about that, would you? While we all stand. Father, I pray this morning that you'll take your word and that you'll use it to accomplish your will. And we know that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I just pray today that you'll speak to hearts, that you'll save those that are lost. And God, for those of us that have been saved in all of these years, we've been enjoying it so very much. But Lord, some way or another, over, over the period of time, we've, we've just lost our zeal, our excitement, our deep concern for those that are strangers to your saving grace. God, do a work in our heart today. Change us, mold us, and make us. Set us on fire, as it were, that we might do our best to win those that are lost. For we beg it in Jesus' name. Amen. While we stand and as we sing, you come.